Welcome to the Black Moose First Podcast. I'm your host, Alton Jamison. I've made the journey from having an incarcerated father to becoming an engineer to transitioning to a professional speaker and author. And now I am the founder and chief chess player of Black Moose First. Black Moose First is a company that offers chess boards and accessories, apparel and personal development products that empower people like you to change the world one move at a time. In the game of chess, white pieces always move first, which is an advantage, and the black pieces move second, which is a disadvantage. Black moves first is more than an oxymoron in chess. Instead, it calls for people to strive for success, even when the odds are against you. To strive for success, even when you may not have the advantages of others. Our motto is, changing the world one move at a time. This podcast explores the stories of how people have overcome adversity to make their own moves and change their own world, whether in the game of chess or in the game of life. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Alton Jameson, and this is episode five of the Black Moves First podcast. So I am elated today. I have a wonderful uh, man of God. And without further ado, uh, Jonathan, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. This is a real privilege, Alton. I mean, to get to kind of come full circle with you like this is really cool. So I'm I'm super excited to be here with you today. That's awesome. I, I know for the benefit of those who don't know, Jonathan, and we're going to get into all the details, has a wonderful ministry, uh, and I'm not going to do it justice in my explanation, but his ministry has helped men, uh, probably thousands upon thousands of men, to walk in sobriety. Years ago, I had some issues in my marriage in my own life, and where I had a crisis in my marriage and a crisis in my own sobriety. And one of the, the books, the first couple of books that I picked up by Jonathan, Secrets, he has several more now that we'll share. I'm sorry, this is Untangled and then his book Secrets. So this book actually helped me to uh, get my life in order, um, to weed out the things that have been generational curses in my own life. And so I'm not ashamed to say that I struggled. I'm just more excited to say that through my struggle, Jonathan and his ministry was the reason that I am sober today. So first, Jonathan, let's start off. Share your story with people. You know, I haven't I have not heard um, anybody yet tell me that when they turned like 13 and started thinking about what do you want to be when you grow up, that like leading a sexual integrity ministry was like top of mind for what they wanted to do. Um, I think most people that get involved in this kind of work, this kind of ministry, it's born out of someone's story, either their own in terms of whatever they've gone through in in recovery and those types of things or maybe somebody that's close to them, somebody that they care about. Uh, in my case, it was my own story. I was, uh, I, I actually grew up in a great home. I mean, I had a, I had a, what you might call a, a pretty normal childhood in the sense that I didn't have, um, I didn't have a, a, a bunch of abuse. Um, there wasn't, you know, I wasn't living in, in any danger. My parents actually loved each other and they loved me and my sister. So I, I feel like I grew up in a re- really stable home. And then when I was 12 years old, I was introduced to porn. And of course, you know, nobody prepares you for that. You you know, when you're a kid and you stumble across this stuff, or in my case, I had a friend introduce it to me, showed it to me. I mean, I had no idea what to do with that. 
Um, so I did what most kids do, and that is hide. I didn't tell anybody. How, that's the reason the name of my book is Secrets. Like that was the main thing that just kept uh, perpetuating was secret after secret after secret. But it wasn't like I was trying to keep a secret. Like, okay, my friend introduced me to porn, and now I'm thinking as a 12-year-old boy, I want to keep this secret because I want to develop a full-blown addiction. I mean, no kid... We're going to talk about this a little bit with chess, right? No kid thinks that many moves ahead. (laughs) You know, you're thinking about just what is the very next thing that's going on. And so for me, it was a lot of these little encounters. And I should put that in air quotes, you know, they weren't really little in terms of how they manifested eventually, but just little by little, an introduction to porn here that I didn't know how to handle, discovery of masturbation, then, you know, just other things that were coming up in my life where I realized, hey, I'm starting to. I'm starting to develop a pattern where if if things are hard at school or like I feel stressed or maybe somebody made fun of me or I thought they made fun of me, I started having this outlet with with porn that felt good. I mean, to be honest with you, it felt like, man, I, I, I much prefer that feeling to the other feelings in my life of stress and anxiety and all that. And then when I got into college, eventually it became involvement with other people. It wasn't just, you know, me with pornography. I was involved with other people. And then uh, I finally got married uh, because, you know, that was my, my thinking was, hey, I, I grew up in the church. And so, hey, you know, we, we understand there's particular boundaries that God has placed around, you know, sex. And so for me, I thought, well, hey, if I get inside that boundary, everything's going to be good, which that boundary is marriage. So it's like, great, you know, go get married. That'll solve my problem. Of course, anybody who's who's listening to this that's married knows your problems don't vanish <laughs> because you get married. If anything, and, and, and Al, you may want to you may want to interject on this. If anything, it's like getting married just magnifies your problems. I was one of those guys where, for me, eleven years old, I had saw an inappropriate show on HBO, and I think I remember one time I was at a relative's house and I was looking for something and I saw a porn magazine. And I remember around eleven or twelve was uh, the first time I had ever had experience with masturbation. And like you said, it it becomes a secret. And so, you know, as I kind of got a teenage age and got into college, I started interacting with other people. And then when I got married, I met my wife. You know, we we dated for five years. We tried to make this commitment that we're not, you know, we're not going to do anything until we get married. So you're thinking that once I'm married, I am good. But then I realized that all the, the secrets and the habits, because as you said, as the moment, uh, it's like my pet rock. Right. The moment I get stressed or finances, argument with my wife or we can't have sex tonight, then I want to go back to my pet rock. And so I think to Mm -hmm. your point and in my case, uh, Jonathan, is that unfortunately I would be gone five, six, seven, sometimes 10 days at a time. And so that's a lot of time with you and your pet rock. Right. Right. And a lot of time for things to develop. So I totally agree with you, sir. Well, and then one of the things that I discovered, and most of these discoveries, just so you know, they happen in hindsight later when I got into recovery. But one thing I realized was that all this, all that porn had been teaching me was really how to be a self-centered, selfish person. Because if you think about it, I mean, isn't that the allure of pornography? Man, make it all about yourself. It's all about your pleasure, all about your desires. Follow your own heart. Go wherever your desires take you. Right. And that doesn't work real well in not just a marriage, 
that doesn't work real well in a friendship or just even a family relationship of any kind. We're not, you're not going to have healthy relationships if you are feeding that paradigm of selfishness. Um, I was totally ignorant to this. I mean, now I'm trying to kind of balance two worlds here when I'm married. I'm trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to try to be this good husband. But at the same time, I kind of want to keep this sort of, I want to keep this compartment. I want to keep kind of this me compartment where I can still go there anytime I want, take care of my needs. Eventually, though, and this is dating myself, um, the Internet came out. Uh, <laughs> and this is back in 1995, you know. And so I got we got a computer or I should say I got a computer. Speaking of selfishness, I didn't even consult my wife about going and buying a computer. And that's back when you had, you know, a computer the size of your desk was like three thousand dollars or four thousand dollars. And so I started getting into online porns, eventually got into chat rooms and eventually started using those chat rooms to set up offline encounters. So now I'm really on the slippery slope. I'm being unfaithful to my wife. Um, all of this came to a head in 1999 when I was depressed. I was suicidal, uh, very, very much a, living a double life. And um, everything finally came out. I finally just, I couldn't carry it anymore. And as a result of all of that, my wife left. And it's interesting because in hindsight, uh, I realized that was actually a, a mercy of God on my life because I needed that much of a strong response from my wife in order for me to really be able to see just how serious my behaviors were affecting other people. And her leaving actually was the catalyst that got me into recovery. Wow. And, and so in 1999, I started plugging in with a counselor. I started getting plugged into a group and I experienced something that I'd never experienced before. And that was both grace and brotherhood. I'd never really had that in my life. I mean, I believe that the grace of God had always been there in my life in the sense that he was always being kind to me. He was always being merciful to me, but I was living for me. So I wasn't able to recognize maybe the goodness of what God was doing in my life. I wasn't able to see it in the people around me because I was so selfish. And then I certainly, I mean, when all those years of porn and acting out, I certainly wasn't cultivating the kinds of relationships where you, you feel a sense that you belong. Like somebody really knows you, somebody really like all your junk is seen. Right. And um, that was revolutionary for me. And so for the last, what has that been? Almost 22 years. I've been on this journey of recovery and growth. And then in 2003, we started Be Broken because I felt God moving us to say, you know, what you're experiencing in your own life, um, you need to pass that along to others. Because I also wanted other people to experience grace and belonging, that sense of community that you can be uh, truthful, you can be open, you can be honest, and you can also be changed. You don't have to stay like, trapped in the shackles of any kind of addiction. Um, and so that's why we've started Be Broken back in 2003. You know, that's awesome. Uh, just to make a chess analogy as well, you know, sin is, is a grandmaster, right? When it comes to chess and you're a novice and you will never, you would never win against sin. And one thing, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I, I know I read a lot about that in, in, in your books and listened to your to your wonderful show, wonderful Pure Sex Radio. Please check it out. A couple of things, Jonathan, I noticed when I got in recovery is that as I became sober, 
I also felt like I was angry and fearful. I felt like everything that my addiction was covering up. <laughs> now those things are exposed because I'm not running back to my addiction. So mm -hmm. during the process, or have you seen men experience that as they get healed from the addiction, they realize that they have a father wound or they got other hurts that are going on? Yeah. In fact, one of the things that I would say is that in many ways, the, the acting out behaviors of an addiction are really only the symptoms of a much deeper issue going on, whether it be emotional wounds or spiritual issues or relational issues as well. And so one of the things we found, especially in men, is that um, there is a, a kind of this emotional stunting that goes on usually around the time that we start finding ourselves traveling down the path of porn and, and those types of things, or you can also see it in, in any kind of other addictive behaviors as well Is when we start using these behaviors to cope, you stop being open. You stop taking healthy risks to be in relationships that are good for you. And so it's all about just, Hey, when I feel stressed or I feel angry, I feel sad, whatever the emotion is, I go and I act out. And what that does is it keeps you in that stunted state. So in some cases, what this might look like is you've got a 40-year-old man who's addicted to pornography or something like that, but there's only about a 12-year-old boy emotionally. In terms of like emotional and relational maturity, he's stuck at like 12. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. It's just right. there's this reality that he may be functioning. He may be been a, like a high-powered work situation. He might be even a manager or owner of his own company or whatever else. But many times, even those things are, are ways to cope. So they're almost like multiple masks that underneath, if he got really honest, he'd say, in my heart of hearts, I'm this terrified little boy that doesn't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm always hoping that things work out so that nobody actually gets behind the mask to see what's really going on and how how little I feel, how right. you know broken I am. So I do believe that when we start peeling back some of the layers, we, we've got to deal with behavior. I mean, we have right. to deal with that. You can't ignore that. Right. Right. I mean, so like when a guy gets in recovery and it's like he's looking at porn four hours a day, we're not going to say, hey, you know, let's talk about your mother wound. I mean, <laughs> right. we're going to talk about that. But like first things first, let's get, get some boundaries in place. You got to stop <laughs> looking at porn. But you're right, Alton, when when some of those boundaries do get in place, I love how you put it. You're like, all this other stuff started coming up <laughs> that I didn't realize was as prominent as it really right. was because it got, it got masked, right? Even right. to yourself, like your anger, you weren't even as aware of how angry you were until like the behaviors that you used to cope with your anger are now put aside. Then you realize, Oh my goodness, I'm angry all the time. All the time. You know, and I, you know, a couple of things that I saw, you know, we use that acronym as well. I think my my group leader and I end up becoming a small group leader, but we would say halt BS, you know, when you're you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, stressed. And all of those times I would begin to act out. Like, and as I was saying, my initial thought was like, hey, I'm not I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to these places, but I'm mad all the time and I'm upset. And I realized that the sobriety, as you mentioned, like if a guy's doing all these bad things, you got to stop the bleeding first. Then you got to really begin to do to do the work. One of the things you mentioned, Jonathan, I want to ask about how bad from your lens is pornography in the church? 
you know, statistically, it, you'll you'll find in various uh, reports and surveys and things that over half of people in in, the, in any congregation have viewed porn within the last week. So that alone should tell us, oh my goodness, it's it's rampant. It's everywhere. You have to remember also that any kind of surveys or statistics are gathered from uh, gathered voluntarily. Right. So I always look at it and I go, considering what I know about the level of shame that a lot of people in the church feel around this issue, I think those numbers are way higher. That's like 80% probably. Right, exactly. And so, so this is why I think it's so important that um, we've got to do a better job of creating safe enough environments in the church where people can feel they could actually tell their real story. And, and it's sad to me that for a lot of people, you can just look at those statistics. If you figure, okay, over half of the people in any church are struggling with pornography, how many of those churches have any kind of help for them to deal with it? Also, how many of those churches do those people feel safe enough to tell anybody their story that they're looking at pornography? And so for me, it's more of a, I think it's more of an issue of, of leadership that, that the, the leaders need to be willing to say, we've got to be a leading voice. We've got to be able to start creating atmospheres where it's safe enough to tell your story and that um, you're not going to be uh, rejected or ridiculed or shamed or marginalized because you've got the struggle. But then the reason that I think a lot of those leaders are not taking that uh, attack is because statistically 40% of pastors have a current struggle with pornography. So for them, it's a like career choice, right? Like, Hey, right. if I get honest about this, I'm going to be out of a job. And I don't like the fact that that's the way we've kind of set up the pastorate position right, right. where this person actually cannot be a human being any longer. They've got to be superhuman. Right. And it's no wonder that, you know, monthly we're hearing of another pastor that's yeah. all in some way. So I do think uh, to answer your question, it's a big deal. Uh, the good news though, is I think we're, we're starting to see a little bit of traction in terms of um, there's a, there is a, you know, collaboration that's happening among a lot of ministry leaders in this area. Some things that we're doing through what we call the sexual integrity leadership summit. We're starting to see more and more um, ministry leaders, church leaders, uh, professional caregivers, get into the same space to say, how can we bring better tools, better resources to the local church so that they don't feel like we have to be silent or, you know, drown in this, but they can actually, you know, do something about it. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember one time I was asked to do, I did a two hour workshop on sexual addiction, sex and sexual integrity for traditional Baptist church. And I can tell that no one had ever delivered and I had like a PowerPoint. I talk about escape plans. I share my story. And at the end of my two hours, the room was silent. I mean, it was quiet. And then finally, one guy, I think he was a deacon. He broke the ice and said, I'm going to be honest with you. When I get mad at my wife, I go watch pornography. Wow. And I noticed the first thing I noticed was that people are hurting and they're hiding. And the second thing that I'll mention as well, and you can maybe speak to it. In my experience, every support group is not a good fit for a person that's struggling with sexual addiction. Because I've seen some groups, like I've went to, you know, if I had a big issue with being attracted to other women, so 
me going to a co-ed support group, you know, I've went a couple of times. I'm like, nah, I really can't, I really can't yeah. do this. And so can you talk about that a little bit of building that safe place that guys can go? I mean, it just can't be all the guys watching pornography meeting the annex building behind the right. church. <laughs> well, that's just it. I love what you're saying there because this is something that actually took me a while to just, just learn in my own recovery and then, and then figure out how do we, how do we communicate that in our ministry? And that is, I think sometimes as human beings, we, we love structures. So, I mean, if you think about it, even the human body is built as a system, like the way our bodies work, you know, you've got your circulatory system, you've got your nervous system, all these things are put together in certain structures. So I think a lot of times what ends up happening is we, we build a structure, a support group, and it's specific for like addiction recovery, right? And so what we do, unfortunately, is we, we think that the point is the structure, not the principle. And what, I, what we're trying to let people know is actually what you need is you need authentic community. That can have a thousand different structures. It can have a thousand different forms. So what I tell people all the time is, hey, experiment. Don't feel like, you know, because somebody told you about one group in this location in town and it's a 12-step group and, and you go to that, that that's the only possible structure for you getting help. The other thing that I love what you mentioned is let's also be careful not to not to make the entirety of our being our addiction. In other words, I love what you said. Does this mean that if I finally admit that I'm addicted to pornography, that now the only friends I can make are <laughs> right. like porn addicts? <laughs> right. Like that's my only community that I can belong to. Right. And I think actually what we need is we need a much fuller uh, multi-dimensional community. Um, I think there needs to be diversity in the community. I think there needs to be, certainly there needs to be, we need to have experiences with people that have a shared experience in terms right. of like, I, I get that. I know what it is to be addicted. But we also need people that that's not their experience, but they want to learn from us. We want to learn from them and we can still be honest and open with each other. And so I think it's got to be multi-layered and multi-dimensional, but it does not need to be locked into a particular structure. What I love about your ministry is that there are a lot of resources, you know, whether it's the podcast. Um, I know you could type in your zip code and you can find different groups. And I will say that you have to find because, you know, the group I had of Virginia, I absolutely loved. And then I went to some groups down here. Uh, they're just not they were not as a good fit for me. One thing, Jonathan, I wanted to mention, how did your wife or how do women or the wives What's the process look like for them? You know, a lot of times, you know, obviously we're talking about men and we may have done damage to our, our spouses. But what resources or what does the process look like for the women who've been hurt? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that, because I think sometimes thinking about what your your whole mission is. Right. Right. Black moves first. Right. You're about trying to help people that feel like they're on the back burner. They're marginalized. They're. Right. And so many wives in these situations, when a husband has a sex addiction or porn addiction or something, they do feel like I'm kind of left to the side. I'm left behind because now all the focus is on his recovery. And so what we we actually have at our ministry is a wives care ministry that tries to help these women um, work through the betrayal trauma and work through those wounds and that pain. 
without needing to think that it's got to be attached to whether or not their husband gets help and whether or not their husband is willing to do recovery. Because that's the other thing, too, is they can they can almost feel like just an attachment. Like, well, basically, the only hope for me getting well, getting healthy, feeling whole is if my husband gets into recovery. Now, the ideal situation is we would want both of them to be getting help and and that there would be full restoration, that there would be, you know, good things that come from that. But every situation is different. I mean, some guys decide, you know what, I just want to go full bore into my addiction and I'm going to divorce this woman and move on. Well, does that mean that wife has no possibility of hope just because the husband didn't want to get help? We look at each person individually, even if they are married, because the reality is at the end of the day, every single one of us carries our pain alone. And and I'm not saying that we can't, you know, the Bible says to bear one another's burdens, but even in that... It's like, can I actually say truthfully, Alton, that even if you bore your soul to me, that I necessarily know what it is like to carry your pain? Right. It's like, I can't. I mean, I would I would appreciate it. I'd, I'd be grateful that you'd want to share that with me. I'd do everything I could to encourage you and come alongside and help and support. But at the end of the day, man, that pain, you carry that pain in a way that that I never could. And so we need to be able to provide individual help for wives who are carrying this pain and that's why we want to see them as an individual that needs recovery from the betrayal of trust and that that deepest form of kind of breaking that covenant. It's painful. And so what I would say to wives is uh, in the same way that we would encourage a, a, a person that's got an addiction to porn to find a safe place to share their story, same thing is true for wives. We want to help them find safe environments where they can unpack their pain. Uh, and our whole wives care ministry is about we've got women in there that they understand it. They're not just they're not just trained professionally. They have personally experienced this journey of healing from betrayal trauma. And so there's a personal touch there, too. That's awesome. I know even what my wife and I went through. I know she went to uh, the group that I was a part of, had a separate wives group, and she went too as well. But I've also seen a lot of guys, they're in denial. You know, I said, how's your wife doing? Oh, she's fine. You know, we're, we're back on track. I was like, man, you, you were just arrested right. <laughs> two, two weeks ago in a hotel. You know, One guy told me before, my wife just doesn't want to talk about it. And so I have seen guys live in denial like that. I know Galatians 2.18 say, if we build again the things that we destroy, we make ourselves a transgressor. Why do you think, Jonathan, guys either live in denial for so long, even after going to groups sometimes? And why do you think guys have relapse? Yeah, those are good questions. I would say on the on the side of the kind of the denial piece, this circles back a little bit to what we we're talking about before about the emotional stuntedness. Um, if you think about it, that response of like, hey, you know, two weeks ago you got arrested. Now you're telling me that your wife is fine. <laughs> That is 12-year-old little boy with his head in the sand saying, I, I, I want to hide. I don't actually want to deal with this. I don't want to, I don't want to sift through all of the emotions that scare me or or overwhelm me. I don't know how to do that. So it's a it's that's one of the reasons I think there's such a huge denial component to really digging into the hard work of not only recovery, but relationship restoration is it's going to not only expose the the addiction, it's going to expose the little boy. 
And for some guys, that is way more frightening than just dealing with the addiction. Because, I mean, let's be honest. What are we, what are we taught so much in our culture, sometimes even just in our own families, about what it means to be a man? Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let me tell you, it's not a whimpering, scared boy in the corner. That's not what we're told, right? Right. So, so the problem is, is it's very hard for us to, first of all, it's hard for us to just get honest about the addiction, even though it's evident, it's obvious to everyone when the truth comes out. It's like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely addicted. You're looking at porn four hours a day, or you've been sleeping with prostitutes. You are addicted. It's not so evident that maybe there is a scared little boy inside that doesn't know how to actually live, be mature, doesn't know how to handle his emotions or respond to them in healthy right. ways. So I think that's one of the reasons for the denial. Um, I think in terms of relapse, there could be a connection there as well. Because if you think about it, once some of those initial layers of recovery come off, like, hey, you've, you've put some boundaries in place, right? You're starting to deal with behavior. You're starting to see some, if I could put it this way, some freedom from doing those particular behaviors. But then, like you said earlier, all of these other things start bubbling up that you realize I have not paid any attention to my anger. I haven't paid attention to my fear. I haven't paid attention to my wounds. And so sometimes when those things just become overwhelming and he doesn't feel comfortable talking with his wife, maybe he doesn't even feel comfortable talking to a counselor about that. It's sometimes only a matter of time that he's like, you know what, it's probably just better that I just go back to what I used to do to take care of this because I don't want to, I don't want to handle the noise. I can't handle the noise of all these things that are rising up in my life. Yeah. I think a point too to, to, to highlight is that I think eat in recovery especially if you're dealing with denial, it's easy to compare yourself to the next guy. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, we've done that's like, ah, oh, well, you know, this guy, he had five girlfriends on the side. I just had one. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, and I think that's the thing that we really got to put the spotlight on ourselves. And I think you said it a lot in the book that it's, it's a process. It's not so much a final destination. It's not like, Hey, you know, I, I signed up for college and in four years I have a bachelor's. Right. Right. You know, it's like I started recovery today in four years, I should be better. Right. If I do, if I do what I'm supposed to do, it's a lifelong process. And I think that's uh, important. I know you talk a lot about grace and grace-based recovery. Can you share, what do you mean by that concept? Maybe talk about your book as well. Yeah. Uh, I want to make one comment on what you just said there oh, yes, about, yeah, about growth and, and the process. You know, one of the things that was uh, kind of an aha moment in my own recovery was when I finally realized that we're, we're aiming in recovery at a fluid destination. In other words, um, I think when I first started recovery, just like every single person that gets into recovery, your initial thought is the goal is stopping the behaviors. <laughs> and you know what? I tell people that's a great goal. That is, but I also tell them that's recovery 101. <laughs> like that's like the ground floor. What I finally realized is the actual goal of recovery is connection. And that's always an ongoing process. So, so think about it this way, Alton. How long have you and your wife been married? Uh, going on 18 years. Awesome. So let me ask you this question. Is your wife uh, an eternal being, meaning that her soul is going to live forever? Right. Well, not yeah, not here on earth, but with God, yes. Yeah. Now, does your wife have exactly the same opinions and thoughts today as she did 10 years ago? No. So see, guess what? 
even in your connection with your wife, are you ever going to reach the end of her? Like, are you ever going to be able to say, well, I can check that box. I'm done. That's awesome. And, and so if you think about recovery in that way, yeah, great. Let's eliminate some behaviors, but let's go on a bigger goal, a bigger journey and bigger mission of saying, this is a growth mission. Right. Like I want to learn how to connect with the people in my life that I love, that my friends, my family. And so therefore even that connection, if you're, if you're on a growth mission, you realize that those relationships are never going to be done. What I got out of your book secrets was that I want to live a life where when you open my closet, you don't see anything in there, you know, not a hanger, right? Not a, not a piece of dust, right? dirty sock, you know, dirty sock. And that's what I'm, that's, I feel like that's where I'm getting at now in my recovery, you know, cause I'll post stuff even on social media and I'll say, all right, you know what? I don't need to be on Instagram or I don't need to, be, you know, just little checks. Not that I've done anything wrong, but I, I always try to find any pockets that the enemy can come in because it's a little, you know, it's just something else he's trying to throw in my closet. And, yeah. and that's what recovery has taught me now to, to really just refine, you know, not so much of trying to be perfect, but what are things I need to continue to do to protect my sexual integrity? But what are some areas that now are exposed that I need to work on, whether it's, you know, anger, frustration, or, all of those areas as well. So it helped me to, to kind of focus on both sides and to, just to be a better person. Yeah, that's a good, uh, actually, I think that's a good segue into talking about grace-based recovery because at every step of the journey, I, I truly believe that it's it's by grace that we're actually transformed. It's by grace that you, you continue to have a desire to uh, be a man of integrity, to say, I, I don't want to put things back in the closet. It's not because... Um, you somehow have reached a point where you go, man, I have figured it all out. <laughs> right. You know? Because right. here's the thing. One of the things that I try to tell people with grace-based recovery, grace-based recovery is simply understanding that it's it's by God's grace that we are saved and by God's grace that we're transformed. And what that does is that speaks truth into our identity. And what I mean by that is that your value is unchangeable before God. That's grace. Meaning what he said is, Alton, there's nothing that you could ever do. You're, you, you, you're made in my image. There's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you any less. And there's also nothing that you could ever do that would make me love you anymore. In other words, my value that I've placed on your life can't go up and down based on your performance. And so if you think about it, that is a gift from God because we're actually told that because of our selfishness, our, our wanting to do it our way, God has said, there's a penalty for that. I'm, I'm, I have to separate myself from you. But the problem with that is that we are made in the image of God and he has a father's heart and he loves his, he loves his creation. He loves us. He loves his image bearers. And so therefore he made a way through Christ to say, I'm not going to keep that separation permanent. And so what I tell people is if you want to understand what grace means to your value, if you ever, if you ever wonder like, how much is my life worth? I always tell people, just look to the cross. Your, your life is worth the only son of God. That's how much you're worth. So here's the thing. How does that work in recovery? When you can come into an environment, come into a group, or come into a setting where you are, you are breathed that kind of life into you that says, you know what, whatever you've done, whatever you've brought into this room, did you know that your value hasn't changed before God? So why don't you tell me your story? Because whatever you say, it's not going to make your value go down before God. And therefore, 
as his agent, I'm not going to see your value go down either. And it creates this, this really stable foundation for the hard work of recovery. Uh, because when you have that stable foundation that says, man, whatever kind of week I've had, whether I've been hitting home runs all week or I've been striking out all week, I don't know what would be, would be good, the best chess analogy there. Like whatever, <laughs> whatever move I'm making, like, you know, whether I'm doing a checkmate or whether I'm being checkmated, uh, it's like that value doesn't change. So therefore, when I've had a great week, you know what? Let's celebrate. Let's worship. Let's be grateful. Let's look at the things that were working and see how we can build on those. In, in other words, my good week didn't make God think more of me. But then if I come back and I got a bad week next week, I, you know what? Let's learn from that. My value didn't diminish, so I don't need to pour shame on myself. I don't need to beat myself up. I, I need to learn from that. In fact, if you think about it, and, and this may be where you can bring in a great chess analogy, uh, do you get better at anything without failure? Like <laughs> no. you have to fail in order to learn. And so how would you relate that maybe to chess? Like that, that particular idea of chess to recovery in terms of failures required to get better. Yeah, I would say one example that I would mention, I, I have a chess coach. So she's, the, uh, she's on the Hungarian national team. She's a grandmaster. I meet with her every week. I mean, she's impressive. Not saying I'm impressive in chess. But I, I meet with her every week and immediately we do these puzzles and it's time puzzles. So in about five minutes, she can solve about close to 50. I can do about 16 on a good day. Wow. But, but immediately, as soon as the puzzle pops up, she knows the direction to go to just because she it's embedded in her. But I'll make a mistake and she'll tell me to focus. So let's try it again. And what I realize is that that's what recovery and accountability and people who have went through this day, they're like grandmasters. Immediately when you're into something, they can see automatically what you don't see. And you're looking at the same thing. And over time, she tells me you got to focus and you got to practice. And that's what I learned about accountability. And I know you have mentioned it a lot in your in your podcast. And, and Stephen has even highlighted on how you are diligent, which I like for you to mention on your daily time with God and and I know people, there's somebody out there is going to ask, how has this guy been able to walk uh, a, a walk for 20 plus years? Can you mention how you have put your own boundaries in life so people don't know that you're not Superman? Sure. Yeah. And what I would say is it gets back to that. It's a growth mission, right? So right. I don't want I don't want anybody hearing hearing this thinking, oh, you know what? That Jonathan guy. So he's been he's been like a saint for 22 right. years. It's like, right. Oh man, this is an up and down journey. In fact, if I can be perfectly honest with you, Alton, I'm I'm entering a season right now where I'm facing new challenges because I've got two kids in college and and a third a junior in high school, so we're kind of in launch mode with our kids and starting to navigate what does empty nest look like and with each major transition in life, there's new challenges. Well, guess what happens when new challenges rise up? It reveals more areas of of brokenness that need help. And, and while thankfully, by the grace of God, that doesn't mean I'm returning to old coping mechanisms, but it doesn't mean that there's not still, hey, you know what, a little boy that still needs to be maturing inside and, and, and all those kinds of things. So I would say that um, for me, the key elements that are foundational for continuing on this growth mission is, like you mentioned, there's got to be a daily connection with God. 
and and not merely some kind of religious thing. One of the one of the things that we found that was pretty interesting in some of our research with the guys that have come through our Gateway to Freedom uh, weekend workshop is the guys who tend to have the most long term success. There is there's one far and away factor that is way way ahead of all the other ones, and it's so simple. It's daily time in the Word, and you would think, gosh, that's got to be pretty easy, right? right. And yet, when you think about guys' lives and schedules and, and work and all that, it's amazing how that can just get pushed to the side. But there is really kind of an anchoring for our souls if we will spend some time every day and not just not just reading words on a page, but trying to really engage God's word, have him speak to you and, and, and really be engaged in that. But the other key element is uh, those healthy connections with people who really know you. And so think about it this way. It really is as simple as Jesus said when he said that it all boils down to loving God and loving your neighbor. What was he saying? You need a connection with God and you need a connection with your neighbors. And I'm thinking, can it really be that simple? And what I've what I've experienced over the last 20 plus years is, you know what? In every season where I've started to get off track in some way, guess what? It had to do with something in my connection with God or something in my connection with others. So I really do believe it is that simple that we need to have those open, honest, you know, brutally, you know, real connections with God and with others. And I think that's what recovery really looks like. That's what health looks like. Yeah, I read an article the other day and it talked about five reasons why pastors fall. And the guy, the, the key word was neglect. You know, we get so busy in our lives. I remember even going in a seminary. And one thing that said in seminary is that don't just allow the uh, the Bible become like history class, because really, right. you know, you go to seminary, you're just studying and writing and studying and writing and you, you can lose the connection. You know, I know we're about to, to wrap up, but Jonathan, as you see a lot of young kids or young men, are there any resources or ways that we can maybe talk to 12 year old men and say, Hey, be aware of the things that are out there or how can we prepare? You know, I even have an eight year old son. Is there a conversations or ways that we can talk to the younger men to be on the lookout? Yeah, we actually have a, of an, an entire kind of growing uh, aspect of our ministry uh, called family care. And okay. so we have a, on our webpage, we've got a whole family resources page and it's got everything from, uh, there's there's like a free download for seven tips for parents, like in how to have these kind of conversations with your kids. We do some podcasts that specifically deal with uh, parent-child issues. We've also just launched a uh, an online course uh, called a Family Game Plan for Responding to Porn. So, and this is a course not just for parents; it's actually for parents and their ch children to go through together. So, we really want to try to create those conversations. Um, so, some of what we've got is responsive, like, hey, if if you have discovered there's porn or whatever, and others of the resources are more uh, preparing, like, how do you actually, you know, how do you how do you lay the groundwork in your you know five to ten year old child to really help them understand. Um, sexuality and deal with the, the feelings, temptations, and all those kinds of things in a healthy way. That's awesome. And, and can you give the website again, just for people can go to, and in case they want to donate to your ministry as well? Sure. Yeah. It's just bebroken.com is the website. And we've got all the resources there for men, women, and families. Um, and you can get to all of our uh, podcasts, our online courses, everything just through bebroken.com. 
Well, Jonathan, this was this was fantastic. I, you know, I, you know, if I was a basketball player, you would be my LeBron James. I, I'm, I'm honored. I really, I really admire what you and your ministry are doing for this world uh, that, that that we're a part of. And you know, because of you, I stay encouraged. I stay motivated, and I definitely want to stay plugged in. So, I, I definitely, sir, it's a high honor to have you here, and uh, we really appreciate it, sir. Well, man, it was a privilege for me, and I, I really count it as a, a great honor myself. And I appreciate you inviting me on to, to talk about this. And and I can't wait to see what continues to happen through what, what you're doing. I think your work is awesome. Uh, thank you so much, man. We appreciate it, and may God continue to bless you, sir. Thank you again for your time today. And remember to subscribe to our podcast, rate our show, and share with others. You can also view us on the web at www.blackmovesfirst.com. My final charge to you is, what move will you make today to change your world? Stay positive, and I'm your host, Alton Jameson.